Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to cars.com. It's magical. Jordan is on best. Harper's on middle. They play together, they believe. Um, if there's Levert, it's cold. Levert, back in. Speed. What's up, Jackson? How are you doing, man? Doing mostly well. How are you, Mark? Good. So uh, it's actually kind of sunny in Cleveland today, so it's uh, it's a good day, man. I can't complain. Yeah, it, it was uh, it was beautiful yesterday here in Portland. I'm hoping for more of the more of the same. So we'll we'll see what happens. Yeah, definitely. When did you uh, when did you go back to Portland? Um, I'm home for a little bit. Um, I, moved, I came back for, I shouldn't say moved, I don't, I don't live here, but, uh, a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, right around the middle of last month. Oh, cool. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, yeah. What's up, Sirvan? Sirvan, I feel like Sirvan's been in every single thing I've ever done, so props, <laughs> man. Um, so, you know, we, uh, I was thinking just having a pretty open discussion today. We normally do pretty minute stuff when looking at the game, but I think there are a lot of more overarching things that we could talk about today. Um, that would be good. But number one, I kind of just want to hit on the Cavs-Sixers game and get your thoughts on that because I just caught up on that this morning. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, the biggest thing was just the half-court offense from the Sixers was pretty uh, abysmal. And people, I think people looked at the box score and say, oh, Darius Garland had 27, Colin Sexton had 28. Maybe I'm getting those in terms of who had what uh, mixed up. But both those guys were like 47% true shooting. That wasn't the issue at all. Garland had a couple of shots in overtime that helped, but um, it was just a half-court offense. Like without Tobias Harris, they really missed kind of that that release valve outside of uh, ben, uh, outside of uh, Joel Embiid. Ben Simmons had a really good first half offensively, but um, was fairly quiet after halftime. They also had seven turnovers. Um, one of his worst games of the year in terms of kind of mm-hmm. ball control and decision making because he'd been really good there for a while now. Um, yeah. Ever since he kind of went on this run since the uh, since the Celtics game, the second Celtics game back in January, um, so he was a little sloppy with some plays. But it was just a half court offense. Seth Curry was like one for thirteen, one for fourteen. Um, a lot of them were good looks. It wasn't like he he was forcing up shots. Like he was getting good looks, kind of within the flow of the offense. Um, they just really couldn't generate anything consistently to to kind of pull away from from an underman team. Yeah, I kind of got that vibe as well, especially watching Ben. He didn't seem as decisive. He wasn't doing as much as he has been um, over like the last month, it feels like. Uh, and Joel just seems not himself, which is crazy to say, too, because he had a play um, in the fourth quarter where he – I mean, it looked like watching Prime Shaq just throwing Jared Allen under the basket and, and dunking it with barely coming off the ground. Um, but overall, I mean, he just seemed like kind of slowed down, not as uh, – not that he wasn't engaged. I mean, he was still fantastic, but – um, I definitely felt like there was like a, I think something came out about his ankle bothering him during the game. Uh, if I, I might be wrong on that. But. Uh, yeah, well, he, I believe it. Yeah, it was that game where he, um, he left briefly in the first quarter. He land, he landed like funny on like contesting like a shot in the first quarter. Mm-hmm. He like landed on Danny Green's foot or something. So he came out 
Um, but then he was back within three or four minutes. Um, yeah, I, I thought he was. I don't. I didn't mean. I'm not that you're saying that he was the problem, but I thought he was mostly. Good. I thought there was a few times where he didn't handle the doubles as well as you'd like. But um, I thought for the most part he was. He was very much kind of his normal self. But um, I don't know. I I have yet to rewatch it, so that's just kind of my impression live. Obviously, you pick up on things, especially defensively, when you watch it on the second go. But um, I don't know. I thought. But I yeah, I thought the biggest issue was Ben Simmons you know, not. Not, I shouldn't say biggest issues. I don't want to blame. Ben. I mean, Ben had twenty four eight and whatever. It was very good on yeah. defense, but um, I thought it was a lack of Tobias Harris, a lack of you know, it was Seth Curry not being able to hit shots. Um, the bench was not very good again, um, and so I, I mean, it's just they just don't have anything. Can, I mean, when Ben isn't aggressive and they're missing Tobias, they don't have anything really that they can rely on outside of Joel Embiid in that game. Um, I mean, Seth Curry's gonna be fine. I mean, he's the Korean big guy usually goes six for 13, seven for 13. Um, but that was the biggest issue is once, once Ben, you know, stopped being aggressive, the shots weren't falling for Seth Curry. You really had to go everything through a, through a big man, which is, is tough. You saw on that last play of the game in a regulation where, um, you know, they, they ran a play pretty, pretty slowly developing um, because they didn't want, they didn't want MB to get doubled and have to rely on someone else. And that's kind of the, that's part of the issue you have trying to run an offense through a big man because it's a little harder to initiate. And so, um, I thought it was definitely kind of, you know, a game that really should have people, um, you don't want to read too much into any one game, mm-hmm. especially without a guy like, guy like Tobias Harris. But um, I thought it was a game that was pretty emblematic of some of the issues this team has from a kind of a, a, a broad perspective about maybe the hurdles they'll, they'll face when it really comes down to it in the playoffs. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that, that brings me into the kind of what I really one of the first things I really want to talk about. Um, I am pretty over the all-star discourse just because I think – uh, I mean, we've talked about this before. They're like, I, when I narrowed down who I, I, I thought I would choose for the East, I had like 25 guys on my list just because there are so many deserving players. And I originally had Sabonis off. Sabonis ends up making it uh, after, as, as KD's injury replacement. And I thought, I mean, he definitely has a case for it, but there are so many guys who do. So I try not to read too much into it. But uh, a lot was made out of it, obviously. And I think there are just such deferring ways of the, in, in how people look at Sabonis' game and what he does for the Pacers. And obviously, you know, you wrote a really great piece on him. I was, I mean, I'll be completely honest, I was one of the people who was not on the Sabonis train early. Um, I thought that we saw some stuff in the bubble that maybe clouded my judgment a little bit on what I think he actually does for the team and uh, how he impacts winning. But I think I, you know, I... Before this season, I ended up writing kind of more of a long-form piece and looking into what he really does because I think there's this concept that he's just a black hole in the offense, um, which I vehemently disagree with now. You know, I think um, obviously he he posts up a ton. Like he's got one of the higher post-up rates in the league. But so much of what he does is derived out of the offense he creates by passing out. Um, And I think it's what we've seen a lot in the last week or so of Pacers ball um, I don't know how much you caught of the last couple of games, but like in against the Celtics and um, in the last game against, I can't even remember. It feels like it was like a week ago, but it's like two days. I get one day off and I lose all the bearing. But uh, <laughs> I mean, teams are now loading up like five guys with a foot in the paint when Sabonis is in. So he's not able to pass out because they're, they're starting to cheat instead of doubling. So they'll just cheat off as soon as he makes his first move. Um, and so much of the Pacers offense is derived. Like you can see, Brogdon and Turner on like I, I, I clipped a play yesterday of Brogdon and Turner um, getting ready to do stuff set up off ball um, but then the double never comes so they don't end up doing anything off ball the movement's just completely gone 
in a lot of regards. Um, so overall, that's been a lot of it. And I think for most people when they watch, and not to just call people casual, but like it takes me watching like two or three times to understand what's going on sometimes. So, um, but I, I think you watch and like initially like, oh, well, he's, he's the black hole, like everything's stopping. But really it's just because nothing's generating off of it. And that's how teams are reacting to things now because there's so much less gravity in general. Um, but I, yeah, to turn it long story short, to turn it over. What are, what are your thoughts on how Sabonis is kind of impacting the team and what you've seen from the Pacers uh, in the last couple of games? Yeah. Um, so admittedly the Pacers are a team that I haven't quite been able to catch as, as much recently, but I think the biggest limitation of Sabonis offensively, honestly, is he's not quite the level of score as he scored yeah. to like consistently de- demand those double teams. He's not Joel Embiid. And again, he doesn't have to be Joel Embiid. That's, the NBA has arguably been the best score in the NBA this year. Um, but the point being that, like, you can get away with kind of, you know, shading or, you know, just pre-rotating rather than full-on doubling and letting him pass out of it. And so I think that's kind of his biggest limitation, which is less so, you know, his own issue and more kind of a flaw with how the ro- the, the roster is constructed around him. There's, yep. no, there's no one to really take the load off of him. I mean, Brogdon can do his thing, but he's not he's not that level of offensive player either or scorer. So um, I think, yeah, the, the offense can really kind of, you know, slow and grind to a halt at times if teams are just going to, you know, play off of other guys and, and kind of force the bonus to beat them and really make them make him be your, uh, you know, your no, I shouldn't say offensive because they, they can run an offense through him to an extent. But if he's going to have to be the guy who is consistently taking all these shots and whatnot, he's just not quite that level of score. He's a very good offensive player. He's a, he's a great guy. Like if you have a if you have a true bona fide 1A or kind of a, a lead star there, he's great with his screening, his rolling, his passing, his, his finishing and scoring, you know, and all that. But when you have to have him be the lead guy, it makes it a little tougher because he's just not quite that level of score. It's kind of the, the impression I've gotten from some of the games I've seen over the last, I don't know, how, however, however long this kind of you know unfortunate stretch has lasted for the for the Pacers recently. Yeah, definitely, and I think that's what I came down to when I when I wrote that piece on him. Because I think a lot of people think of Sabonis and uh, look at his box scores, and not just accuse people of only looking at box scores, but like. Um, I think they look at him and they're like, oh, well, he's the top option. And really, he's not. A, a lot of times he has to defer to being the top option because things are sticking. You know, like, and he's, I think part of the issue too, he's not really that great of an at rim finisher because he doesn't have a lot of lift. Obviously, he's an incredibly smart post up player. He's really good at crafting, getting into his way there. But just the kind of attention that he's getting now, like, he's only shooting 69% at the rim this year, which last year, I mean, he was at 65%. He was good at the rim originally in his first year. Uh, I mean, second year with the Pacers when he was coming off the bench. Um, but he's just not, like, extremely elite. And part of the issue, too, is he's not taking uh, – I mean, he's still taking some mid-range shots, but he's cut out a lot of the long ones, which has overall been good because um, he's taking more threes now. But he was a good long, long-range long shooter. I mean, he shot 46% from, uh, from 14 to the arc last year. Um, but also his kind of floater range, a lot of his post-up area stuff um, that are, you know, far, like a little bit farther out of the paint have not fallen well at all this year. And I think that's been more teams keying out on him too, especially his left hand, even though he's gotten a little bit better at that. Um, but my point with him, he's really more of a – he's a floor raiser in that what he does for everyone else. And I think a lot of what we're seeing with um, with Victor Oladipo this year, which we can, we can talk about the contract later on when we get to more general stuff – that just came out yesterday, but uh, like Vic looked good at the beginning of the year, not perfect, but I think he looked better because in in my watching him and understanding him, his handle is what's really not back. Like I think his legs are back, mm-hmm. but his handle just has not caught up with his legs for whatever reason. Um, 
And the reason that he looked semi-okay to start the year is because he had the dynamic screening of Sabonis. Um, he really was able to screen him open. And I think you even go back and look at 17, 18, uh, and the way that him and Thad Young set things up for Vic uh, to get to the rim, because uh, he's never had an awesome handle. He's never really been like the most dynamic, fluid uh, ball handler. But by just by having like the screening of, of Domas, who's probably, I would put him second or third best screener in the NBA. I mean, he's right there with Gobert for sure. Um, I'm sure we could bring up somebody else, but like in terms of guys who are like that high volume usage and, and what they're doing, um, he's able to essentially because the Pacers don't have a real primary, he can in a way elevate guys like Brogdon or Old Depot into being kind of quasi primaries just by getting them the extra space. Um, so that's how I have kind of shifted to viewing him, and I'm hoping more people can get towards that. But that's that requires a lot of thinking to to get to that that state. So I'm not sure that we're uh, we're probably a ways away from getting people to talking talking like yeah, that. Well, but it's, it sounds lot, nice yeah. in principle. <laughs> For sure. I think I think the biggest thing that's, you know, important with a lot of these stars and whatnot, um, you know, I, I would I would call some I mean two time all star, but like these types of guys who maybe are a little miscast and then you'll look like like Sabonis's impact metrics this year are not good at all. And I think that's a reflection yeah. of the fact that he's in the kind of he's in a role that isn't really isn't really suited for him. He's asked to do a little more than he has to and and the numbers look bad in certain ways. And so I think with a lot of guys in general, like understanding the context of the role they play and maybe how it isn't quite suited for them, and maybe how that affects a player's, you know, impact metrics, plus minus and things like that is a really important kind of stage that people need to reach. And again, that that requires you to to study a team a lot or to watch a team a lot. Know that you, I don't even know. I think obviously watching a game and watching teams is always really important, but it doesn't always even necessarily like, you know, require that. Like you look at a guy like Zach Levine and his impact metrics are great this year. But people will say, oh, it's, it's on off. It's bad. But just go look at the lineups he plays with. Yeah. Like you like you have there are so many ways that like if you don't have time to watch the Pacers or whoever, you know, 14 times a year, 20 times a year or whatever it is. Um, you can go look at you. There are so many stats nowadays that can maybe help give you some context. Like if you see something out there, like you watch the honest, he's clearly a good player, like clearly a very good player. And so, but you just realize that there are some limitations with what, with the roster around him and maybe his own game. So I think we, I think we're getting to a better point. I think, you know, analysis continues to get more nuanced and insightful and whatnot for the most part. But, um, I think there, there's certainly more, more to be done, um, with that. I think Sabonis is a great example of how, you know, the eye test to, like you watch him and you think he's very good. And then you go look at maybe some numbers and they're not quite as good as you want, but like you, you kind of got to trust, trust your own eye on this one. I realize that maybe the numbers are, you know, an indictment of the role he's playing, not the player he is. Yeah. But I mean, we have to bring it up now is, is he better than Chris Bosch ever was in Toronto? I think that's the real <laughs> question. I, yeah, I about tossed my phone when I saw that yesterday. We don't have to talk about that, but I got to get some kind of subtle jab in. Um, but no, it's a great point. Cause like, um, I, I promise I'm going to talk about the game in a second, but the last thing I want to say is, I mean, like looking at Nikola Vucevic, his season this year has been incredible. I've gotten really tired. I mean, he has probably one of the worst on-offs in the league. Um, but then you have to point out, too, like for most of the year, they've been missing four starters. Um, I mean, Fournier just came back within like the last week or two. Um, but, I mean, he's starting – no offense to Gary Clark, but Gary Clark is not a starting-level player. James Ennis is barely a starting-level player. Um, I would argue, I mean, even most contexts, he shouldn't be. Uh, that team is just so devoid of talent with how injured they are right now. That's why his on-offs suck. And their bench is, like, semi-decent because Terrence Ross has been really good this year, even though he's inconsistent still. But, um, th- th- yeah, it's just, like, it, t- it takes a lot of diving in and trying to really parse through things and figure out, okay, well, why is this happening? Instead of, like, throwing out a number and saying, well, 
this is this is causation for this, or this is like direct uh, because of this. We know this. We don't know anything just because we can look at a number. We have to really um, dive into it and and try and understand it better. But uh, just all right. So to start off with the game, though, um, who do you think Gar Sabonis from uh, from Buckets GN? Uh, I mean, this one's this one's pretty easy, right, Jackson? I mean, I think Joel's guarding Sabonis for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, they should. I mean, Joel is questionable for for tonight, I believe. Yeah. Um, I think same same with somebody somebody else I thought was questionable. I think I can't remember. Um, but yeah, I imagine I imagine Joel will guard him. I have to think that makes the most sense. And then they'll 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 throw Simmons on Brogdon again just because Simmons had such such success the last two times these teams played. Uh, the last time these teams played, excuse me, um, in that wild game. But uh, but yeah, I imagine they'll throw they'll throw Embiid on Sabonis for sure. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of questionable, Malcolm is questionable again tonight. He did not. Uh, he did not play against the Knicks. He tested his knee. Uh, he banged knees. I don't remember who he banged knees with in the uh, in the Celtics game, but he did. So he is questionable again. I think because he actually like warmed up. I think that there's a chance that he'll play tonight, but um, we'll see on that. One question I do have to ask you. I don't know if you uh, were aware that this happened, but TJ McConnell played 46 minutes. Uh, in the in the last game, actually forty six minutes and twenty seconds to be exact. Um, well, <laughs> I gotta ask your thoughts on this because I I kind of went off on a small tirade, um, and there's there's been a lot of uh, we'll get to it in a minute. But all right, what are your what are your thoughts on that? Because that was a that was a lot. Yeah, I mean, I I, I haven't caught this. Game. I wanted to, that was the game against the Knicks. I wanted to catch it. I haven't been able to yet. It's on my list, but um, but yeah, I saw that said to me that um. That's a lot of minutes for TJ McConnell. That's a lot of minutes for any player. Um, I, I, I think you got to find a way to better disperse minutes there. I don't think any any player can really be their their full self with with 40, the forty six minute workload. Now I know TJ is kind of a guy who never seems to get tired, but uh, I, I don't think that's the optimal way to to use a player like that who has kind of clear limitations in in his game. Who kind of has a, I would say his his. His utility has expanded the last couple of years. I think he's been really good in Indiana, but I think he still kind of has some, some, some hurdles to that you know that he presents. And I don't think playing him forty six minutes is the way to, to maximize his game. Yeah, yeah, I'm. Uh, that that's basically what I said too. Uh, I just think, I think I was a little bit harsher as well. I mean, I would just say bluntly, uh, in a regular season scenario, unless you're playing like the like we had the. Um, Minnesota-Denver game that was essentially a playing game. Um, I think that was, gosh, was it three or four years ago now? Uh, I mean, Jimmy, yeah, God, it feels like feels like <laughs> even longer because Jimmy was still there. Um, God, I mean, the, the Wolves were in the playoffs. Wow. Uh, yeah, was that. That year. I know, right? Like, God, <laughs> this, this feels like forever ago. Uh, man, I couldn't even drink yet? Wow. What a, what a throwback. Um, yeah. But – no, I mean, like, I just don't think that there's any justification for ever playing a player 46 minutes in a regular season game. Um, I mean, even if you account for overtime, uh, unless it's like a double or triple overtime game, whatever. But um, that's been the biggest problem with Nate Bjorkman so far. I mean, that's been uh, like Caitlin Cooper's, of course, well-documented how uh, Sabonis and Brogdon are in the top 10 in the NBA. Minutes played, um, and we've seen such a drop-off in uh, in terms of what they do in the fourth quarter, um, just overall, I mean, a lot of their numbers have been juiced in the third quarter because they play the entire third quarter. Um, I don't know, like, how do you? My my ultimate question is, how do you assess um, how a coach is doing? Because I, I think 
I mean, not I think like I I know uh, just from being on Twitter, a lot of a lot of Pacers fans are getting frustrated and uh, actually calling for firing Nate Bjorken already, which I completely disagree with. But um, in looking at how you gauge and uh, I guess rate a coach would be the way to say it. How how do you kind of view that? Yeah, I mean it's it's tough. Um, you know, I I think. I mean, I'm guilty of it too, but I think judging a coach is really tough unless you're watching every game and following the team, you know, night in and night out. Um, like, I feel confident that I could certainly evaluate how Doc Rivers is coached this year, but any other coach, really, I think any any analysis from my end would be incomplete. Now, I've watched a lot of teams' games, but like, I haven't watched I haven't watched 20 games of any other team besides the Sixers this year, um, mm-hmm. and so I th- and that would only that would be what so it would be 20 out of like 35 games. So I'd still be kind of working from a, an incomplete you know point of view, and so. I think it's really tough to, to judge coaches, but I do think there is, I do think that playing time balance can be a pretty important thing, especially for a team that has playoff aspirations like the Pacers. Um, now, I, yeah, I, I know you're, and you're not the one that is calling for his job, but I think anyone who is, is in that position has to kind of realize that uh, the, the spot Bjorken has been put in is not been ideal. Um, you know, the roster, the the guy they traded, who's their best kind of downhill threat, um, the guy they traded him for hasn't played yet, and he offers a kind of a similar, a similar sort of, Lilo, stop, uh, <laughs> similar, similar sort of you know ability to, to get into the paint and, and help create things. Um, oh my goodness, my dog is is having hey, a no worries, there. man. It's normally my dog whenever we talk, so it's uh, it's only um, fair that Leo gets in. Yeah, um, but I think this, just the point being that um, you know you they're missing a guy who you can create a lot to an extent in Karis Levert and obviously Victor Oladipo. And so I think he's been put in a tough spot, but I do think the the minutes load is pretty ridiculous. I think it has to be something that should be, you know, trimmed down for sure. Um, I just don't think, I mean, I understand that you want to play your best players a lot, but your best players slowly, you know, slowly or quickly become much less versions of themselves um, when you play them such heavy minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I think we're coming from the same spot on that. And I think, um, it's been a little bit disparaging because I really thought this year was going to be the opportunity because I mean, you know, I guess it's funny because a lot of people think like I was talking to my, my 96 year old grandmother the other day was like, how did your Pacers do? I'm like, well, you know, grandma, they're not my team. I don't really have a team. I just kind of, I, I like basketball and watch them. That's my job. And, um, I think a lot of people don't get that. And I'm not trying to say we have like a hard job or anything. I, I mean, I love freaking doing it, but we're not fans. Like, you know, I think when I'm looking at this, I get frustrated when a player doesn't get an opportunity to do something and you know that they can, or like um, you see the same play get run four or five times in a row and it it doesn't work four or five times in a row, like things like that. Um, And like, that's been how it is for Aaron holiday this year. He's turned his game around a little bit Um, over the last probably two weeks. He's been a little bit more efficient from the field. He's hitting his threes now, Um, but he has his lowest usage percentage of his career. Um, and, and that's where it comes into a really interesting look at, okay, well, how do you even talk about or look at um, coaching and some of that stuff? Because like, like, like I'm mentioning, like T.J. McConnell, Malcolm Brogdon, and, and Domas are the only three players who are trusted to run the offense um, for stretches at all this year. Um, like Aaron is not getting an opportunity to really run much. Um, Edmund Sumner has barely even been in the rotation. Uh, he's finally got to play – uh, the last two games, but like you're just seeing a lot of, I, I think if you want teams to actually be successful, you have to find ways to get the uh, like a, a, everyone on your bench an opportunity, not just being out there 
but getting them meaningful minutes where they're actually getting to create. And um, I, I don't know. I think just finding that kind of ability is important. We really just haven't seen that with Indiana yet. And part of it's the injuries, but part of it's just been a little bit head scratching as well. Yeah, well, I mean, hey, if you if you uh, if you want a coach who plays the bench more, Doc Rivers will certainly uh, certainly help <laughs> the Pacers out with that coaching um, swap. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously he's still he he's still been playing Tobias Joel and, and been a lot of minutes when, in close games, but uh, but yeah, the, the Sixers fans will have you uh, will be or frustrated for the opposite reason: the fact that guys like Furkan Korkmaz and Mike Scott and, and Matisse Thybul uh, are playing significant significant minutes, uh, and they're doing they're doing a lot of all bench lines when they can, which uh, is. It's not ideal when when a bench when, when the bench is a weak point of your team. I'm I'm always curious, you know. I wouldn't say I don't know curious in the right ways, but worried. But um, I think it's funny, you know. When I feel like every every fan base doesn't like their bench, and so I'm just convinced that like pe- like people don't realize that like every every player that comes off the bench uh, is inherently flawed to a degree for the most part. Yeah. I mean, if if you aren't if you aren't one of the 150 best players you can start in the NBA, you probably have some significant glaring flaw. Um, and so I, I think this, like, I, I think from a Sixers perspective, like, clearly the minutes that these all bench lines play is an issue for sure. But I don't think enough fans realize that, like, every bench unit, every bench player who plays like notable minutes, um, you know, is going to have some issues. And so um, that's not to that's not to say like Sixers fans are wrong for you know, being frustrated with uh, all these, these bench lines. But I think it's funny that like fans and analysts and writers and whatever a certain team can kind of live within a bubble um, because every bench team or whatever has has its flaws. So. Um, I would imagine every every fan base and whatnot was at one point this year or multiple times this year uh, had some had some grievances with, with the play of their bench. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. I think that's a really good point. Um, well, with with Tybal though, I mean, he played such a huge factor in the last game when Indy and uh, and the Sixers went head to head, really flustering them at the top of the zone with Ben Simmons. Um, I think. You know, Malcolm Brogdon probably still has nightmares about that, to be completely frank. Um, what have you thought of Matisse lately, though? Uh, I know he's his, just looking through his box scores and uh, watching a couple of Sixers games recently. His minutes haven't been super consistent. Like, he's playing, you know, 10-plus minutes a game, but his role shifts a lot from game to game. Uh, what have you thought about what he's bringing so far? Like, has, have you seen any kind of real improvements offensively? Like, I was uh, – I was a little bit impressed against the Cavs. He, he didn't take too many shots, but he had he attacked a closeout, and I was like, okay, cool. Like that's uh, that's not something I'm used to seeing from Matisse. So so that was nice. Um, but I'm assuming that's not something that's been super uh, super prevalent recently. Yeah. So he's had a, so he had a really really nice stretch for a long while. Um, he's had a couple mm. of um, less good games. Like he had um, the first game against the Raptors last week. Um, yeah, the first he had like three fouls in like a really quick succession. And I think it's the Mavs. He wasn't great either. Um, but for the most part, he's been like really, really incredible defensively. Um, he, I mean, it seems so easy to say, but I mean, he legitimately is a guy, if he can just find any sort of like path to offensive consistency, he's going to make all defensive teams. Like he is, he is so incredible. Um, just, you know, his body control is navigating screens. He, the ability to make plays with his hands and kind of avoid fouls for the most part. Um, now he does like his foul rate is still like pretty high for, for a guy who only plays 15 minutes a night or so, but, mm-hmm. um, like he is just so incredible on defense. Like getting to watch him at times this year has been, um, insane. I mean, that, that game, you know, as you mentioned against the Patriots was, was pretty ridiculous, um, but he's had other games where like, he just, like, I feel like the 12 minutes is in there, like every, every other possession I'm making a note of like, Oh, five, like really good defense, or, like five, like forces a guy to pass the ball something like that. So, um, he, he really is phenomenal. I, I like, I, I, I hope for for his, like for the sake of like like viewing like that he can figure it out because him and Ben together is so 
incredible playing defense, and it just isn't really tenable on offense at the moment. Um, and he has he has tried to put the ball in the deck a little more often, but like he just he just isn't like he doesn't really have any like craft or skill around the rim. He's so slight of frame, so he's not like some yeah. dynamic dribbler. Um, and the jumper just hasn't been like the amount of times he misses like wide open spot up threes. Um, it's just like I I I like I don't. I don't want to come off as like I'm concerned for him, but like I just I do feel like discouraged for him. Like he's like he can make like he's an open shot. Like he like you know what I mean like I, I just think he that, that would be so huge for him. And I'm, again, I'm not trying to like you know like a kind of you know belittle or anything like that, but I just I just can imagine that like it's frustrating for his own sake. But like he has these open threes playing off of guys like Ben, Tobias, and Joel, and he can't capitalize. Um, but that that really is all he needs to be. A, you know, it seems easy, but like to be a 37 percent three point shooter, 38 percent. And now teams aren't going to guard him. Like, I get it. Like, teams ignored him last year, ignored him this year. But, like, that's really – and just, I think, finding some semblance of, like, one or two ball skills to, like, attack a closeout to or attack this space that teams give him um, would be huge. But he really has been awesome defensively. This is Advertiser Content, brought to you by Frito-Lay. Hello, I'm Chip Murphy, here to get you ready for the big tournament. Tonight we'll break down – we break down who will be cutting – Cut! What are you two doing? Sorry, Chip. Prez here got his feathers ruffled when I told him Ruffles has zero chance of winning the title. And I was letting Dip know that she is not taking into account Ruffles' iconic ridges. Guys, it's March. We have to start talking about the tournament. We are. It is the 2023 Frito-Lay Snack-It. We're talking about big-time matchups between Cheetos, Smart Food, Lay's, Sun Chips, and more. Just head to the Frito-Lay Snack Bracket and vote for your favorite chip, pretzel, or dip for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. This sounds great. Keep up the good work. Just go to frito No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends 4-3-2023. Void wherever hidden. Here's worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Yeah, no, that's like a really great point. And I think he's, I mean, he's obviously the headline of the if he shoots all-stars. And I was like, <laughs> in, in watching that Cavs game, like, you see a lot of this, not to the same level, but you see a lot of the same stuff with Lamar Stevens. Like when I was doing my draft work last year, um, I love Lamar Stevens. First of all, I mean, great dude. I've seen him interviewed a couple times. Um, but, like, he just – offensively, he just doesn't have a lot. Like, he has, like, a, a small post game. But for the most part, it's like you're saying. Like, you, you have to be so good defensively. Like, even Tony Allen, um, he could at least handle the ball and attack closeouts and, and get to the rim a little bit and wasn't great there. But um, even for him, like, he had to have an offensive game with how good of a defensive player he was. So, yeah, that's a – a really important thing to look at. Um, in terms of looking at this game overall, though, I think I'm, – I'm trying to think how I want to attack this. What do you think – okay. In terms of Miles Turner, we've talked about Miles before um, and how good of a season he's having. I was talking to Steve Jones about this the other day, and we both think um, his case has kind of slipped a little bit, partially because the Pacers' defense has dipped. I mean, they're only 12th right now. I say only, but just compared to where they've been the last couple of years, it's low. Um, it's hard to be defensive player of the year if your team defense is that bad or, or that, that close to average, I should say. Um, this game is huge if Joel plays. I mean, even if he doesn't play, it's huge for the Pacers because they're 15 and 17 right now. Um, but I think if Miles wants – and Miles has been vocal about wanting to be defensive player of the year this year without actively saying it. Um, but 
in terms of looking at this game, how would you, if you're like, let's say you're Nate Yorkman, how would you go about trying to defend you well uh, with, with miles and, and, and Domas in general, or just the whole roster, I guess I should say. Yeah. So I think, I think the way to go about it, honestly, would, would, and we talked about this um, when I had you on my stream, uh, whenever that was two months ago, a month and a half ago, mm-hmm. um, and Joel didn't end up playing. And I, you know, my gut, my gut is he won't play again tonight. Like when he's questionable, you know, this early, it, it, yeah. he won't play. And he seems to like, he seems to just not want to play the Pacers these days. For whatever <laughs> reason. He's with so many games against the Pacers. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think I think if he does play, the the strategy should be to throw Domas on him, um, but be pretty aggressive in shading help with um, with Turner because of his length and his instincts and whatnot. Try to really muck up those passing windows and passing angles um, because that's that's what the Sixers want. They want they want to bring the doubles and they they you know Doc has talked a lot about like knowing where the answers are, knowing where his spots are. And there have clearly been plays this year where Joel will commit a turnover because he thinks the guy's going to go one way or be in a certain spot and he's not there. And so I think trying to muck up the kind of those windows and angles to pass out of doubles is going to be what they should do because Domas is just working from a very much a, a, a height and size that's advantage. You know, Joel, if, like, if you just guard Joel, you know, if you just guard him single coverage, he's going to get that mid-range jumper off as much as he wants. And he's shooting like mm-hmm. 52% from mid-range this year, whatever it is. Um, and so I think that's not going to work. But I think, you know, I don't know. I don't know who they'll start um, tonight. I think Doc is shown to be pretty flexible in who he starts when they're down a starter. Um, you know, we've seen Maxi eight times this year. We've seen Thibel. We saw Korkmaz last game, but then Mike Scott started the second half against the Cavs. So, um, I think I think the the goal should be to whoever you whoever you think has the least offensive utility um, would pro- I probably throw Turner on him and be pretty aggressive. You know, sending help against Joel um, because as we mentioned, Turner's length, the awareness rate. Reaction time instincts can be really useful, kind of in that, that help uh, defense role. So, I think that's the way to go about it. But I, but I do think it'll be it'll be tough just because of you know the the strength slash quickness and you know height advantage and whatnot he has over you know Domas uh, and and Turner. I mean, obviously he doesn't have any really the length or anything over Turner, but definitely has the the strength advantage. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. And I think just speaking on Joel too, um, where would you have him in MVP right now? Because I think uh, a lot of people are having Jokic way too far out. Um, but I, I do think I'm at the point where Joel's probably overtaking him for me for number one. I, I like I know we we both like talk about it. I'm I, I find that stuff like kinda of arbitrary, but I always have it running in the back of my mind because I mean I think about basketball every waking moment, man. So like why the hell wouldn't I have it in the back of my mind? But um, just in watching the way the guys are playing and how they're impacting the game. I think it's very difficult for me to not have Joel number one right now, um, just with what he's doing on both ends. Yeah, I so I go Jokic there. Um, yeah, I, I get the argument from B, but like they've both been so dominant this year. Like I like whenever I watch them, like I'm, I'm writing a little bit of it. I'm writing a piece on Jokic's scoring leap right now and like going through some film and watching. And I know like obviously like watching him like watching specific plays of him doing good things is going to make you think he's he's really good but yeah like, whenever i watch a game too like i'm just i just go with him like i think they've been awesome on a per game basis on a per game basis i think by like sure you want to give Joel the edge i get it but i think there is like there is something to be said for missing six games and i know that a lot yeah. of us reps no, but but for me that's something I, I value to an extent when it's in a tiebreaker um you know in six games yeah it doesn't seem like a lot but we're we're, that's like 18% of the season. And so like, you know, by the end of the year, that's 12 games. And I think like that's, and you know, Sixers fans are really, you know, I've, I've been vocal about saying that. I think, you know, I've been vocal about being very 
you know, uh, bestowing a lot of praise on Joel, but at the same time saying that, like, I think it's tougher to win MVP when other guys have been really, really great. So mm-hmm. I, I go Jokic there, and I, I, I don't think he's, you know, like, I don't think Jokic will win unless, you know, the Nuggets, um, unless the Nuggets get, like, a top four seed. And they have a path to do it. I think they're, like, three and a half or four games back of the four seed right now, and their net rating is really good um, compared to where they sit in the, the West right now. Um, I think they're seventh or eighth. And I know net rating is definitely a, a weird stat this year, especially. Um, yeah. with everything but i just go Jokic. like his his dominance is insane his defense is like is pretty like solidly above average like i think at least yeah. average for a center for sure no i would agree um his quick hands are phenomenal um and the scoring leap is really been, like if it was if this was Jokic last year but um i would probably go with with joel but the scoring leap is insane he's got like what three or four 40 plus point games he's averaging 27 on 65 percent true shooting um the passing is absurd the, the quickness really gives him a little more offensive versatility too um, and so I go with him and I, I'm bummed because I think the, when Russell Westbrook won MVP, the, the narrative, the discourse and narrative that followed that has really kind of ruined guys chances and teams chances for having MVP on a team that isn't top three in their conference. Um, yeah. and I, I don't necessarily think Russ was like the, the runaway favorite like that. Like if you want to give it to Kawhi Harden, I get that. But the discourse around a lot of it, you know, both, you know, on NBA Twitter and media who, you know, contributed to that has kind of become that Russ didn't deserve it. He won it because KD left. He never triple double, but like, but Russ was great that year. He, his clutch yeah. stats were insane. His impact medics were awesome. His efficiency was pretty good. Like he shot decent numbers on pull up threes to that season. Um, and so I think there certainly should still be space for a guy who was on a, a team that isn't quite as good as you expect um, or what you expect of a traditional MVP to win it. And I think also like, the, the Nuggets supporting cast this year compared to the team that made it to the Western Conference Finals is way worse. Um, you know, Jamal Murray has turned it around. He's actually he's actually having quite a good season after an incredible February. Um, but he isn't the same player he was in the bubble because that player was like a bona fide all star yeah. and all NBA guy. You know, Jeremy Grant. You know, for all the issues he had in the regular season, he was quite good in the postseason. Paul Millsap has taken another step back. You know, Gary Harris has been in the lineup. Um, they didn't have Will Barton last year, but Will Barton's been pretty dreadful this year. Um, and so I think if you if you were like. They just don't. He doesn't have the same narrative of losing KD, but he he's been incredible. I get it if you want to go Joel, but for me, I think you know on a per game basis, Joel's been a little bit better. But those six games matter to me. I think that overtakes you know that gives that gives Jokic the edge for me. Um, I think those games matter, and I get if people don't want it to matter, but I think there's certainly um, there has. I think that has to matter to an extent because people can say, oh, the, the Sixers are where they're 21 and six or whatever with you know with Joel in the lineup or whatever. And twenty-one and seven, but like those games matter. Like he, he and the team are choosing to give him rest, and those are costing the team wins. I'm not saying that's the wrong decision. Like I totally, like I think it's the right decision to preserve his health. Like you want to make sure he's ready to go for the playoffs and make sure he can be the same dominant scorer. But those games matter to me. Like you, even if he's not in the lineup, that's a conscious decision they're making, and that's hurting their chances of running away with the one seed. And so that's that's not a criticism of him or anything. It's a criticism more so of how people and fans are using kind of his case and his personal record to prop him up. So that that's why I see it again. I don't want it to be critical of Joel or anything like it's, it's smart to rest him, but I think that has to matter to an extent too. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I, uh, I said, I mean, I've, I've thought of it like that. I think they're, they're close to neck and neck for me. I've really bobbled between the two of them. I don't, not that I think LeBron's had a bad year. I just think with what they're doing, it's so far ahead of what anybody else is doing in the league. It's hard for me to give anyone else a shot at it. Um, I get are you okay? Well, I know this is not a, a Nuggets uh, a Nuggets talk, but do you want to talk about the Nuggets? Because I have a lot of thoughts on where the Nuggets are at right now. Um, yeah, kind of how the yeah, front we, office we can, is handling things. Yeah, we can. We can go.
I think I I feel like they they've they're at the point where they've really sat on their on their on their laurels for a little too long. Um, I I mean they're still having a solid year. They're eighteen and fifteen, like blah whatever. They're seventh in the West. Not to berate that or downgrade it, but I think after what we saw Denver do last year, and with how Nicole Jokic is playing, like I, I know I've. I've had a lot of back and forth with uh, with people in the Nuggets media sphere about you know what they're doing, and um, they always preach well, not not them specific, specifically, but the Nuggets in general preach you know like not skipping steps. But I just think they're at the point now with how freaking well Jokic is playing, and growing up in Cleveland and watching LeBron have some of his prime years squandered away by a pretty inept front office. Um, and that's not Denver. Denver's had a really good front office. Like the, I think Tim Connolly is one of the best um, presidents of basketball operations in the league. And they've done some awesome stuff, but I just look at where Denver's at right now. Um, and it's disappointing because I think what Utah is doing this year, I mean, Utah has been fantastic. I didn't expect Denver to be that good, but I expected Denver to be kind of in Utah's position as the team that really takes over the West this year has an awesome regular season, and we'll see what happens in the uh, in the playoffs. And I, I feel like they they had opportunities last year where they let some guys kind of slip. Like obviously the Malik Beasley, uh, Jerry Van- Vanderbilt trade looks a lot worse now in hindsight, and it's easier to make things worse than it is. Um, I mean to to paint things a different way after they've happened. But um, I mean overall, you can just see like. I think with how good Jokic is now, they have to make some kind of move to to really go into trying to win with him. At least that's my opinion. Yeah, I I agree. I I think like I'm I'm a big Jamal Murray proponent, and I think you know he, you know, as I mentioned earlier, he's having a much better season than maybe you know the discourse around him would have you believe. And maybe that's just me. Like maybe that's just me being a bubble, like in an NBA Twitter bubble. But um, but he's having a good year. But I don't like the way Jokic is playing. Like as you mentioned, like you. You get, he can't be your second best player. Like I, I just don't think that's that's good enough. He's too he's too inconsistent as a decision maker and scorer. Um, I think his defense has certainly improved a lot, but I don't think he's good enough there to kind of be. You know, he can't he can't bolster your defense much. He's more of kind of a a cog and a good defensive machine. Yeah. Um, and they just don't have like any sort of like guy you can rely on defensively. Um, you know, I mean, as I mentioned, Jokic is 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 good. Like he's a good defender, but he's not the guy. He's not. He's not your rim protector. He's not Gobert. He's not Embiid. He's not the guy you can count on to kind of be. Um, I think Ben Taylor introduced this concept recently, but kind of like your offensive one and your defensive one. Yeah. Um, Jokic is clearly good enough to be your offensive one. Um, I think he's right now he's been the best offensive player in the league, um, mm. but he's not good enough to be your defensive one. You want him as kind of maybe your two, two and a half, three, um, and they don't I mean, like their best other guy is like Paul Millsap maybe. Um, and Millsap has declined so much last year or so. Um, he's actually having like a pretty solid season, you know, given his age and whatnot, but still not a guy you want to rely on a ton, especially against really good teams. Um, that's been the worry. I think he's he's generally kind of struggled a lot against some of the best teams and kind of the, the teams that are going to, you know, present issues for the Nuggets in terms of where they want to go. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I think like, I, I just don't know what's out there. Like I, I, I think I talked about last, like I thought they should have tried to go for Anthony Davis. Um, I know... I know Davis probably only would have stayed for one year and whatnot, um, but I think that would have been a move worth going for. Like he fits so well alongside Jokic, I think they certainly should have been way more aggressive going for James Harden. Um, yeah, and so I think definitely the latter. Like I get being a little hesitant on Anthony Davis. That happened prior to last season. 
Um, you were still only in, you know, you're, you're, this was before you, this is when Jokic was like a, a superstar, but he wasn't, you know, this good. Um, and so I get it, but like, you know, they got, they got a, what, um, three weeks of watching Jokic be this level of player in the, in the, and they still didn't, you know, necessarily do anything about it. Um, like I, I just, I think, I, I know it's easy to say like, yeah, like they, they should have gotten James Harden. Yeah. Most teams should have gotten James Harden, but, um, I think a guy who has multiple years left on his contract and is that good. Um, is certainly something you should be going after given the way Jokic opened the year and has continued to play. So, um, yeah, I tend to agree. And I, I, what did they get in return from Malik Beasley and Jared Vanderbilt? Again? They got back Houston's first, I believe, um, which I think they, I want to say they used that on RJ Hampton. Um, which, I mean, like, see, this is, this is where my problem is. They have so many young guys that are fun. Like, I like them. Like, Zeke Najee has been cool this year. I like what he's doing. Um, he's flashing a lot of interesting stuff. He's 20 years old. RJ Hampton, nice athlete. I think he has a lot of potential. 19 years old. Uh, I have gotten kind of tired of the bull bull stuff just because I think a lot of people are memeing him more than actually taking him seriously as a basketball player. Um, and I'm like, okay, this is great. These guys are, are capable. They have a lot of potential in their future. Same thing with Michael Porter. Um, but I'm like, okay, Nikola Jokic is 25, 26 years old. He's starting to enter his prime. I'm not, I'm not interested in – and I don't know if he'll end up being interested in waiting three years for these guys to be in their prime. And I get – you have to have young guys in the core always to, you know, be building up and, you know, keeping in your rotation. And uh, it just – that's being a good organization, obviously. But um, at the same time, like, you have to find a way to cash that in towards having guys who are helping you win now. Because I don't think you can really argue that, that Zeke Naji and RJ Hampton and Bull Bull are win now guys. I mean, those are guys who are going to help you in the future. But you have to have you, you you just have to have better stuff going on right now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, they just I think kind of the the summary which you, you you kind of hit on is like way too many way too many guys who are you know in three years imagine what they could be or in two years you can imagine how good they can be like. And and I don't know if this is necessarily the case, but there's a there's a decent chance this is the best year of Nikola Jokic's career. Um, yeah. I shouldn't say decent. There's a chance I would say because 26, 25 is kind of kind of start that is usually kind of the start of a guy's prime, generally speaking, statistically. Um, and so I just think like like wasting so many minutes. I shouldn't say wasting, but you know, giving so many minutes to to MPJ and you know and uh, and Zeke Naji and RJ Hampton. I know the latter two have more mostly played because of injuries and and some stuff going on recently, but. Um, I, I just, yeah, I think they've gotten a little too cute. Um, I think they've, they've got to be swinging big for something. Um, and I mean, it's, it's, it's similar to kind of in the Sixers situation. Now the Sixers have uh, a benefit because they have Ben Simmons as their co-star. Um, I don't think he's like miles better than, than Jamal Murray, but I think he's kind of solidly a tier better or so. Um, and, and that helps. And they have Tobias Harris, who's better than, you know, Denver's third best player who I, I mean, uh, I think you can kind of go in a, different, a lot of different directions based on maybe the aggregate versus the season specifically. Um, but it's similar where in, in the Sixers are at least in this position where they have Daryl Morey on their side, who is yeah. proven to make big swings and recognize when he has a franchise superstar. Um, and so I just don't know if the Nuggets, I just don't know if Tim Connolly in, in that kind of the, the, the front office, you know, decision makers there are similarly aggressive. I don't think they have proven to be um, because I think if they had, if they, if they were, we would have seen, them linked a lot more closely to the James Harden stuff. I know they were kind of tangentially with maybe MPJ to Houston, but 
I think we would have seen them, you know, a lot more involved because they had the players and what kind of the picks to maybe make some enticing things happen there. Um, and I don't think they ever really kind of fully, fully entered those trade discussions or they didn't, they didn't at least to the point of it becoming a public, you know, talking point. So um, I'm, I'm totally on board with you. And I think it's, it's, it's a bummer to see a guy who was legitimately has a case for being the best player in the NBA this year during a season where guys like Giannis, Kawhi, Joel, LeBron, Steph are all having Dame are all having really, really good seasons. Now, LeBron, you know, I don't want to say LeBron's having like one of his best teams ever, nothing like that. But point being, there's a lot of really, really awesome basketball players who are having a great year and your and your superstar has a case as the best of the bunch. And they're not, they haven't really shown from a decision-making perspective to capitalize on that yet or be aggressive in terms of, you know, benefiting from that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's the real crux of it. And, I'm hopeful to make it some kind of move, but at the same time, it's uh, it's difficult because we're we're. I don't want to say that I don't think anybody, nobody's going to be moved, but at the same time, like with how Washington's playing lately, um, which has taken me by surprise. A lot of it's them getting healthy, um, but I mean, Beal seems very unlikely to be moved this year, um, barring some kind of uh, massive out of nowhere thing happening um victor oladipo is the guy who seems most likely as a trade deadline target um i don't really see that doing anything for denver um i mean victor that's not the downgrade victor but i just i he's not the guy that i think they need to try and take a chance on um like they need somebody who's an actual wing that is going to be i mean victor oladipo right now is more like gary harris than, than jeremy grant for them which should, mm-hmm. that's not not the shit on gary harris um but that, that's just kind of how I view that right now. I, I, what do you think about Victor's um, health and ability moving forward? I know that's a, a, an entirely different tangent, but uh, I'm curious what you think on, on, yeah, on him so moving forward. I think the trade market for him should be – So, I think I, – I don't know. So I don't know how teams view him and whatnot, but I think generally yeah. the, the idea of him is a guy who can give you some off-the-bounce creation and juice and shoot a little bit and whatnot. But I think the way you should view Victor is a team that needs like – a, a defensive playmaker like that, like that's the team that should be targeting him because he legitimately, I think has been quite good on defense this year. Like yeah, I've between the Pacers and the Rockets, I know he's been out with the Rockets for a little while and he's been, he's back now, but I think he's been very much closer to his all defense levels of 17, 18 than you and pre-injury 18, 19 than he, than he was, you know, last year, especially like, I think, I think you and I have talked about it previously, but I think he's much more to kind of some of those instinctive playmaking sequences and whatnot. Um, this isn't an end all be all, of course, but I like his estimated plus minus, his defensive estimated plus minus this year over at dunks and threes.com is like plus 2.6 or something like that. Like he's like top 40 overall uh, in estimated plus minus because his defense is like the cream of the crop for perimeter players. Um, but I think that's the, the way you should be viewing him if you're like, if you're a team that, if you're a fan or whatever, whatever, like advocating for trading fertility, but it should be because your team needs a defensive upgrade. Now, the Nuggets are that team, but I don't think. As you mentioned, I think you know the Gary Harris parallel is pretty great, you know, especially because they're both guys who had a lot of offensive utility and and worth, especially before the a litany of injuries or whatever um, kind of bogged down their offensive use uh, production. So I think that's that's a great point there. But um, yeah, the ball control point is is something that every time I watch him, it's like my goodness, this dude loses control of it like like eight, ten, twelve times a game, and it just it just yeah. derails so many of his creation attempts. Um, and it's it's weird because I think that's just an example of like you don't know what's going to happen to a guy post injury. Um, like you wouldn't think that a it was a like a, a ruptured quad or or whatever it was mm-hmm. um, would like derail your your ability to dribble and handle the ball consistently. Um, 
but that's been the, that's been the biggest thing he struggled to gain back. And I, I don't think it was like great pre-injury, as you mentioned, but I thought it was it was good enough between kind of his burst and his power um, and force. Um, he was able to at least keep the ball with him um, and whatnot to kind of use that as a dribble drive creative pull-up shooter. Um, but yeah, it's just like it's just such a bummer because like he does have a lot of the same skills he had pre-injury. He just can't keep control of the ball consistently, and and so now he's so reliant offensively on the jumper, um, and it hasn't been there in Houston whatsoever. It wasn't really it was there to start in Indiana, but it wasn't. Yeah, I think he was maybe thirty-two or thirty-three percent from three. Um, and this year he's below, and, and now since moving to Houston, his efficiency is dreadful. Um, but that was always like, like there were people talking about like Victor Oladipo's back and whatnot, kind of the first few weeks in Indiana, but like. And I was like, I, I don't know if he's back. I think he's just hitting threes at a, at a rate that like is a little higher than you'd expect from him. Um, and so that's kind of a long-winded way of saying he's a defensive first player again, um, who, if the jumper is there, can give you some offensive utility, um, but really has it has really has issues you know, creating for himself because of the the handle limitations at this point. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Um... I think people were very quick to jump to conclusions on where he was at. I'm interested to see what he looks like when Christian Wood comes back. Um, because when – it was for a very small sample size, but when he was there with, with Christian Wood, I thought he looked good still. Um, I think Christian Wood is a, not a good screener currently because he, he looks to slip everything, um, which, I mean, I get it. He's a fantastic rim roller. He's great lob threat. But uh, finding that balance is important. But I think if the, he's the able Brandon to Brandon Clark Obi Toppin, uh, Obi yes. Toppin line of screening. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I'm very hopeful that um, he and Wood can develop some synergy there if they actually get to play together again. We'll see. Uh, the trade deadline's coming up. So, um, and that brings up a great point, Noah from uh, at the NBA Underground. To, to people listening, if you haven't already, go read Noah's piece on Shea Gilgis Alexander. It's really good. Um, but. What would you pay Victor Oladipo right now? Um, and that's how much would you guys give him in free agency, assuming you'd overpay a bit to reach that next level. Um, I'm interested to hear what you think on this, because I, I already have a number in my mind, because I was thinking about this yesterday. But I believe Houston offered two for 46, 46 and a half, which was yeah. uh, the most they can offer, and he's not interested in taking it, which um, what is, is not what super Indiana, surprising. What did Indiana offer him again that he declined? I want to say it was four for four for eighty four or four for ninety, uh, which mm-hmm. was the most they could offer at the time, I believe. Yeah. Um, and they were going to be able to offer him like pretty much the full max uh, this summer, and they were under the impression that he was not going to take it, which is why they moved on from him. Uh, at least mm-hmm. that's where I, yeah, basically, yeah. I I, I would not give him the full max, but uh, I definitely uh, I think I'm a little bit higher on him than, than others are right now. Yeah, so I someone asked me this yesterday because we were actually talking about we were just like in a, either in a group text or some somewhere we were just talking about Old Depot and whatnot. Um, I I think I think it would be between like twenty two and twenty four million, um, banking on maybe he could get maybe he could re, continue to regain some ball skills and hopefully you know lean into kind of a secondary offensive role where it becomes you know really harken hones in on the shooting. Um, and, and you know, becomes a, a viable spot up shooter who can who can attack closeouts with his burst um, and doesn't really need to take many dribbles. Um, and is it really a defensive first guy? That's where I would go. I I'm not great with contract evaluations, but I think the defense is good enough that like there is kind of some pretty some pretty good utility there. Um, and I would at least maybe give him a little more than he's worth at the moment to bank on some continued offensive revival. Um, but that's where I'm at. I don't know exactly where 
where you're up. I'd love to kind of hear your, your thoughts on it. Um, because again, I'm contract evaluations are not something I'm, I'm generally great at when it comes to MBA discourse and analysis. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm still working on it too. I think I'm a little bit better at it than, uh, than I used to be, but, um, I would say four for 90 would probably be my cap for him just because, um, like you're mentioning, like his off the dribble ability when it's there. Um, I, I think the fact that just that he is a guy who I, I just, my personal opinion, teams are always, if there's somebody who was something that just holds inherent value for a team, um, like a guy who wasn't all-star is always going to get some different kind of treatment from a team just because that's a, something they can sell to fans B I don't know why, but it just always seems to my inherent, uh, or I'm probably using the wrong one, but my inherent like notion is that teams do tend to value that in some regard. Um, so I do think Vic could get four for 90. Um, that's where I'd probably tip out on him just because like you're mentioning, like um, I think I would, I would say too, if it's the right context, I would be willing to pay it uh, because a team where like he, he was doing really well in Indiana at the beginning of the year, because I think across the first 10 games, he only had like, I think he had his lowest usage percentage since he was in OKC um, or uh, or Orlando. I can't remember. No, it was OKC. Um, and that was huge for him because he was not taking uh, – he was not really taking a lot of rhythm jumpers. He was just taking a lot of stuff that he was stepping into that was open. Um, he wasn't forcing anything, which is – I mean, that's easy stuff to say, but, like, he had found a really good synergy with Malcolm Brogdon and Domas and, and was really focused on just being a good defender, making the right plays. I think if you get him to a place like Miami, which I'm sure my my people, the new cornrows when this go up goes up, they're gonna be ready to turn off. That's why I saved it for the end. Um, but I think the place like that where he is clearly not the number one option would be great for him because I, I think it's tough because I think he's still grappling in his mind. This is something that I really struggle with talking to people about because they they not that they don't get it, but I think a lot of people blow it up like I can't imagine how difficult it's been for him to uh, go from in 17-18, he's looking like a top 10 player who was ascending to being one of the better players in the NBA to 20 games in the next year. He has his first injury gets compounded later on in the year, probably should not have come back. Um, and then he, he obviously, like we mentioned, like he has that injury against, I think it was against the Hornets, either the Hornets or the Raptors. I can't remember my head right now, but um and then he comes back in 18-19, he's clearly just not the same player. Um, or I mean in 19-20, clearly not the same player. Um, the bubble really didn't do him any justice. I kind of wish for his sake that he hadn't played in the bubble. Um, I also wish that he'd handled things better. But I think it's just so difficult to look at this guy who was on the precipice of being one of the best players in the NBA, not playing for an entire year, um, had this idea in his mind that he was going to be a max contract guy. And then um, that just ended up not being the case. You know, injuries happen, and uh, you can't really judge that stuff until you're back out on the court and and you see how you play. Um, so I, I think a lot of that's been lost in the discourse, and, and rightfully so in some ways. Like, I think him and his – I particularly am critical of his agent. I think his agent has been just – on some, from some of the stuff that I'm aware of, his agent has handled things really poorly on his behalf. Um, but also part of that is on Vic for choosing him as, a, as his representation. But um, that, that's got to be extremely tough to be from that level to uh, to kind of come into the realization that you're not there right now, or at least you know you're trying to get back to that. And 
Um, so I get why he, he wants to go out and get what, what he thinks he's worth, but I also understand why teams are, are reticent to give him that. So that's my long-winded way of saying I think four for 90 in the right context would be good. You know, like maybe even Boston. Like I think Boston could be a really good spot for him. Um, if probably not, well, you probably don't want to have him and Kemba on the same team, just given injury history and contracts together. But, um, like if, let's say if Kemba wasn't there or something, you know, and granted Kemba's played really well the last two or three games, but, um, just a place where he's like more of a one B or a one C and is like, you've mentioned like your top guy on defense. I think that is like perfect for Vic. Yeah, for sure. I think the point about the proper context is really important because, as I mentioned, you know, the, the way to use him is like kind of a fourth or fifth option offensively and one of your better defenders. Um, whereas I worry that, you know, a lot of teams, you know, I don't know about teams. Again, I have no idea how teams view him. I would, I would hope that any team that is interested in signing him in free agency or trading for him at the deadline um, has watched a lot of him this year and realizes how good he's been defensively and how generally reliant he's been on other guys to help him create. <clears throat> um, I hope just generally that the idea is that they understand what he is at this point. But yeah, I think that that's a great point kind of about the human side of it because yeah, I, I, you know, I, I never want to like, you know, get too in, into that side of things, but I, but I do think it's, it's important knowledge. And I just, I, I think, yeah, it's a huge bummer just the, the way he was kind of a rising star. He was a top 10, 12 player for a year and everything kind of came together and then it came crashing down, you know, a year later, eight months later. So um, yeah, it can be really tough for anyone to, you know, anyone to, you know, come to come in terms with that that circumstance have changed um and I, I think obviously that's i think it's just i think it's something that anyone can from from a human side can relate it doesn't have to be sports just like if any any circumstances change for you i can imagine that are favorable I, I can imagine any person wants to get those back so um and it's hard to kind of adjust to the to you know adjust to that so yeah i think that, that's a great point about all of it i think you kind of hit the nail on the head but but yeah just about kemba yeah i think i'm you know, I'm, I'm glad to see he's been playing a lot better the last eight or so games i think um you know, there were people that were like, oh yeah, Kemba stinks and whatnot. But as like, I was watching, I was like, he's just missing shots. Like if he looked good athletically, yeah. unless yeah, this guy is more fluid than he did in the bubble. Yeah. It's like, unless this guy who, um, unless this guy who's been one of the better pull-up shooters and scorers for the last six or seven years, just forgot how to shoot, he's probably going to be fine. And so has a little ways to go to get back to his efficiency. Um, you know, in terms of where he was last year and a few years other than prior, but, um, I, I think he's going to be fine. I was just you kind of you mentioned Kemba that kind of inspired me to bring him up. Yeah, no, um, definitely. I'm, I'm, I mean, he because he totally killed the Pacers. Uh, <laughs> like the, his pull up shooting was ridiculous. Just was totally yeah. on. I think the Pacers were like they were playing like normally they play miles more in center field, but they were willing to play more of a um, semi drop against Kemba, and he torched them. Um, but yeah, luckily I, I don't know. We'll see against the Sixers tonight. I don't. I'm, not super if, if Seth Curry is going to continue to struggle a little bit, um, that would probably be ideal because he's what well, I mean, he's probably the best bullet threat right now. Um, and he's still not, yeah. pull, I mean, he's not pulling up as much from mid range or anything, but um, yeah, it should be a good game. Jackson, do you have anything you want to plug before you're out of here? Um, well, I mean, I think anyone on here can it probably follows me, but if you don't, you can follow me on Twitter at Jack Frank underscore JJ. The, flex, uh, links the to- absolute flex. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, links to all the places I write um, are are there. I'll have a piece of Nikola Jokic coming out in the next couple of days talking about, you know, his, his scoring leap. I think that's the biggest thing he's done to become an MVP candidate this year. I'm excited about that. Um, I'm on locker room three times a week. I'll be here tomorrow to to talk, I think, maybe some Sixers jazz. I don't know exactly what my plan is, but um, I'll be there tomorrow. Um, 
Hey, I appreciate you having me on, Mark. I like kind of, I always enjoy talking hoops with you. Enjoy that we can kind of talk both Sixers, Pacers, and just a general league perspective. Um, I think we hit on a lot of different interesting topics today. Um, Noah does say that anyone who's significantly improved their handle while in the league, um, I think Kawhi would be the only one I think that comes to mind. I know there are other guys. I've talked about this a lot because from a, from a draft and scouting perspective, but um, it's a great question. I think it's it's kind of a, I think it's it's a tough one to evaluate, but yeah, I think it's a really really interesting thing to, to study with guys. But I uh, appreciate having me on, Mark. I'm glad to glad to talk hoops. Always always welcome to do it again for sure. Yeah, of course, man. We'll uh, we'll definitely reconvene soon. Uh, to everyone listening, thank you for listening, and uh, I'll be back on on Wednesday. And I'll, of course, you know, follow me on Twitter, follow Jackson. Um, we got a lot of stuff coming out. Have a good rest of your day, guys. See ya.